0: It's Thursday, December 16th. I'm Oscar Ramirez in Los Angeles, and this is The Daily Dive. NASA's Parker Solar Probe has made history, being the first spacecraft to touch the sun. The probe launched in 2018, but just this past April, on its eighth flyby, it flew through the sun's upper atmosphere, also known as the corona. There, it was able to sample particles and the magnetic fields. The next flyby will be in January 2022, and scientists expect it to get closer still. Justin Casper, Deputy Chief Technology Officer of BWX Technologies and professor at the University of Michigan, joins us for how humanity has touched the sun. Next, waves of COVID infections continue to cause problems for hospital systems facing staff shortages and that are already full treating people with other ailments. In most cases. Those locking up the system are patients who are unvaccinated and it doesn't stop in just one area. The ripple effects of transferring patients to different locations with space to treat them also puts a strain on hospital workers. Drew Armstrong, Senior Editor for Healthcare at Bloomberg News, joins us for more. It's news without the noise. Let's dive in.
1: And We can send spacecraft into orbit around Earth or or around the, the sun. And we see these solar winds, but we've never seen this interface before actually sent a probe into the solar corona. And that's the advance that we're reporting in this uh, recent publication.
0: Joining us now is Justin Casper, Deputy Chief Technology Officer at BWX Technologies and Professor at University of Michigan. Thanks for joining us, Justin.
1: Great to be here.
0: Let's talk about some interesting space and science news. Uh, You know, I saw some tweets going around, humanity has touched the sun. There's a mission going on with the Parker Solar Probe. This is a a NASA thing. And they just for the first time reached the corona of the sun. This is the sun's upper atmosphere. Uh, Got to sample some particles, magnetic fields up there. Some really interesting stuff. But this is the first time that we've gotten this close to the sun. So, uh, Justin, tell us some more about it.
1: So the visible surface of the sun, the thing that's yellow when you look up in the sky, that's at about 6,000 degrees. If you look during a solar eclipse or you go up into space and you look at the sun in X-rays or ultraviolet light, what we see is that's not the actual end of the sun. The sun extends out and has this million-degree atmosphere we call the solar corona that goes out millions of kilometers into space, and that corona is actually part of the sun. It has a really strong magnetic field. It rotates around as the sun rotates. And it has all sorts of impacts on the rest of the solar system. It produces winds of uh, plasma we call the solar wind that go out and hit all the planets, cause space weather like the the aurora or those northern lights. Reach out into interplanetary space all the way out to the rest of the galaxy where it merges with the interstellar medium, and that helps shield us from radiation from supernovas and black holes. So it's really important that that wind exists, and. We've seen indirect evidence of that kind of boundary between the outer atmosphere of the sun, the solar corona, and the solar wind for years. We can look at images during eclipses and see there's this material kind of frozen around the sun as it rotates, and we can send spacecraft into orbit around Earth or, or around the, the sun, And we see these solar winds, but we've never seen this interface before actually sent a probe into the solar corona. And that's the advance that we're reporting in this uh, recent publication.
0: And tell me a little bit more about the mission specifically. This one happened in
1: April. We're just
0: learning about it now.
1: The report just came out. Yes, that's right. So a couple things that force us to have to be patient on solar probe. Turns out it's really difficult to get close to the sun. So Earth is going around the sun really quickly, and you need to figure out a way to slow down. So Solar Probe is a small spacecraft It launched on a really big rocket, and even that wasn't enough. What we did is the orbit is so precise that it flies over the surface of Venus seven different times. So it launched in 2018, in the summer of 2018. And just a few months later, it flew within a few hundred kilometers of the surface of Venus. And what that allowed us to do is the thing we call a gravitational assist. We actually sped Venus up a little bit, and Venus slowed the spacecraft down a little bit, and that bent our orbit so we got closer to the sun. The first time we flew past the sun, just a month after that, we got into 35 solar radii away from the sun. For perspective, Earth is 215 solar radii away, so like a seventh of the way. And over the course of the last three years, we've had a couple more of these encounters with Venus that get us closer and closer. So in April of 2021, we had our first encounter coming into about 15 solar radii, and about a day before closest approach on April 28th of 2021, we crossed into the solar atmosphere for the first time for about five hours. So it took a few years before the spacecraft, after it launched, before the spacecraft got close enough to the sun for that to happen. You also mentioned it took a while for us to report the results, and that's because We don't get the data right away. The spacecraft has to get far enough away from the sun that it can deploy a communications antenna and talk to earth without the antenna getting vaporized. (laughs) Um, And so it can take months for us to get the data down and then make sense of it. And then in this case, write up the results and, uh, just this uh, week announced uh, our findings.
0: Well, what you're describing right there leads me into another question. Is there anything special about the solar probe? Was it beefed up in any special ways to withstand the high temperatures once you get up there?
1: Yeah, absolutely. So just to give you some sense of what we're dealing with here, at closest approach, the spacecraft is being hit at its front by about five and a half megawatts of sunlight. That is so much light. The sun's about 475 times brighter than it is at Earth, that it heats things up to maybe 1,500 degrees Celsius or hotter. So the whole front of the spacecraft is glowing red. We have a specialty heat shield in the front. It's made out of a carbon foam and some other really high temperature, state-of-the-art materials. Behind that heat shield, the rest of the spacecraft is in a pretty nice, benign environment. We're able to use a lot of standard technology for spacecraft. But we had to come up with a, a really advanced heat shield that could survive those temperatures. And then some of the measurements we used for this paper are taken by an instrument called the solar probe cup that actually looks straight at the sun during those encounters, scoops up samples of the sun's atmosphere, and then reads out to us back on Earth how fast things were flowing, what it was made of, the temperature, et cetera. And that's the basis of this report. And it took a lot of work (laughs) to figure out how to get that thing to survive and operate without melting.
0: Yeah, that's amazing.
1: So what's next for the probe? Yeah, that's right. Well, actually, we had a flyby at a, a new closer distance just a few weeks ago, but we're in the same situation right now that we don't have any data yet. We we got an initial readout from the spacecraft that it survived the encounter. We know we recorded a lot of data, but that won't actually start streaming down for a couple of weeks. So the excitement kind of continues again and again as we get these uh, playbacks of the observations from the earlier encounters. What's really exciting to me is this crossing of the into the sun's atmosphere happened when the spacecraft was about 18 solar radii away from the sun and our final perihelion or closest approach to the sun which will happen in 2025 will be at a distance of 9.8 solar radii about twice as close wow cool. so if you think about it right it's great to dip below this this uh, surface and enter into the sun's atmosphere for the first time but knowing that we're going to get twice as close you know, we're, we're going to have a much better understanding of what's going on when we're not just at the boundary, but like deep halfway into the sun's atmosphere. And yeah. and now we know that's going to happen. You know, just we've had to wait a couple of years as we keep getting closer. But that's going to be really phenomenal to see how things continue to change the closer we get.
0: That's amazing. Justin Casper, Deputy Chief Technology Officer at BWX Technologies and Professor at University of Michigan. Thank you very much for joining us.
1: Thank you so much.
2: When this wave of cases hit the state, it started in these low-vaccinated areas, a lot of mountain Appalachia. It filled up the hospitals there, and then pushed more and more patients into other hospitals around the state. By the time this wave was a couple weeks old, you essentially had locked up the healthcare system.
0: Joining us now is Drew Armstrong, senior editor for healthcare at Bloomberg News. Thanks for joining us, Drew. Thank you. Appreciate it. Wanted to talk about some uh, interesting reporting you did. You spent some time with some Kentucky hospitals just kind of observing how a lot of hospital systems are being pushed to the brink with COVID patients, largely driven by people that are unvaccinated. You know, there's uh, a lot of data that shows, you know, in these highly unvaccinated regions, it drives up the capacity of the hospitals. And, you know, we've been following the story of hospital workers and, and the hospitals themselves. They're burnt out. They're overcrowded. ICU beds can become a space on ICU beds can become an issue for a lot of people. I think if you don't work in the healthcare area or know somebody or were at the hospital yourself, you don't see a lot of these stories. You don't really hear what's going on there. So, Drew, walk us through uh, what, what uh, some of your latest reporting showed. I got
2: Really interested a couple months ago because I, th- I think we've all heard a lot of stories about, you know, hey, horrible things are happening to these unvaccinated COVID patients. Hospitals are really stressed. But I, w- I was interested in how healthcare works as a system. We took a look at data from every hospital in the country. And specifically, we're looking at how unvaccinated and vaccinated places in a broader region kind of play off each other and how that flows through a state's healthcare system or region's hospitals. We identified Kentucky as the place to do that reporting because they've just been through this massive wave of Delta variant cases. And they have some really, really low vaccinated areas. And then they have places that are a lot, you know, kind of on the high end, places like Lexington, Kentucky, where the University of Kentucky is. And what we found was that when this wave of cases hit the state, it started in these low vaccinated areas, a lot of them out in Appalachia. It filled up the hospitals there and then pushed more and more patients into other hospitals around the state. By the time this wave was a couple of weeks old, you essentially had locked up the healthcare system where patients in these smaller hospitals that, you know, they're pretty sophisticated, but they don't take care of the really, really bad stuff. You know, if you have a bad stroke, they can stabilize you, but they're going to send you on to, you know, University of Kentucky Healthcare for neurosurgery. They couldn't do that because everyone's beds were full. There was no way of moving patients around. So you had a situation where you had COVID patients who needed more extreme care, who were waiting, but you also had patients who had other conditions, heart attacks, strokes, who weren't able to get what they needed. This system of transfers and hospital networks and the way you can kind of move patients around and use hospitals at higher and lower acuity, it all just fell apart in the middle of this wave. And there have been a lot of human consequences
0: because of that. Tell me a little bit more about this transfer system, because what I said earlier, you know, a lot of people don't really realize what's going on here unless you're either part of it or had to go through some of it. But what happens when these smaller hospitals get filled up, the rush is on to call other hospitals, see where people can get transferred. And as you mentioned, there's these regional hospitals, they get pushed there, then they get pushed to University of Kentucky for the specialized cases. It's really a very logistical issue that needs to be played out as, as well.
2: You know, if you live in a big city, I, I work in New York City. I live in the suburbs. And it, it's easy to take for granted the fact that if something bad happens to you here, God forbid, there's a half dozen major academic medical centers that all operate, you know, the most sophisticated medical care in the world within 20 minutes. I mean, and, and more likely closer than that. If you're in rural Kentucky or a lot of other places in the States, the hospital nearest you it's probably not going to be a big, fancy medical center. It may be a one-floor, 10-bed, and they might have an ICU. They might have two doctors and a critical access hospital. An hour away, there may be a 200-bed regional hospital that can handle a lot, like we said, but not the really, really complex stuff. And then the really, really nasty stuff, you're going to be going to a place like University of Kentucky. They are the biggest transfer center in the country. They have a, a office floor where they essentially have their transfer center. They get around 2,000 calls a month from hospitals around the state and around the region where they are you know, saying, hey, we have a patient who has a really bad stroke and they're going to need neurosurgery, you know. We've got them stabilized here. They've been here for an hour. Can you take them in? We have a COVID patient who is in dire straits. They're very young. They might be able to make it if you put them on one of your heart-lung bypass machines. Even when COVID is not happening, There is a lot of reliance on being able to move patients around in these systems. You know, not everybody and and most people in in the country don't have the immediate access. The first hospital they go to if they're having a medical emergency, which is typically how a lot of these things happen, is not going to be some big, fancy, highly sophisticated hospital. It may be something that can do a little bit, but not everything.
0: As I mentioned, you spent some time in uh, Kentucky at St. Joseph Hospital. Tell me about how they handled some of their waves of covid
2: yeah, and I'm glad you brought this up because it gets to what we were just talking about with kind of these systems of moving patients around. You know, a hospital, like you mentioned, if their ER is totally backed up, they will put word out to all the ambulances operating the area, "Hey, don't bring patients here." Usually, that's not a big deal. Let's say they may do it because you know, in one case, they had a tornado. Uh, that was in the, one of the times they went and divert in the last 20 years, and that's fine because there might be another hospital 30 minutes away or 15 minutes away, and they can send ambulances there. When COVID hit this hospital, they had a situation where they went on divert. It was the third or fourth time in August that they had gone on divert. They were on divert for two hours. They were telling ambulances to go away. And then they, they looked around the rest of the region. Every single hospital around them was on divert as well. They said, what do you say? there's nowhere for these patients to go. We can't be on divert. These people are just going to die in an ambulance. Okay, take us off. Bring them here. We'll do what we can. That's what I mean when I say the health system locks up. When you know Our health system in the U.S. is built for disasters, but it's built for short-term disasters. It's built for a big crash on the interstate, a chemical plant explosion, things that last a day or a week. It's not built for a two-year-long constant state of crisis.
0: Tell me a little bit more about who's winding up in these hospitals, because a lot of time we're hearing about very mild cases of COVID, Uh, you know, the Omicron variant, thankfully, we're, you know, hearing that they're more milder cases. We'll see what the data bears out on that. But a lot of the the last surge that we had obviously had to do a lot with the Delta variant. And, you know, we're talking about places that have low vaccination rates, too. So what else do we see in some of these places?
2: If you look at the demographics of vaccination in, in Kentucky, but this is also true of a lot of less vaccinated places in the country and you kind of drill down on the groups within those places, older people are, tend to be pretty vaccinated. you know. So if you're looking at a county, let's say with a 50% vaccination rate, that doesn't sound that bad. I mean, let me be clear, it's not great. But when you look at it more closely, you realize that a lot of that 50% is the older population, which means your younger population is very, very, very unvaccinated. This most recent variant, the Delta variant, and I think we're, you know, remain to be seen what's going to be happening with Omicron, but it's very good at finding unvaccinated people and finding them all at once. At St. Joseph in London, Kentucky, it's about an hour and a half south of Lexington, you heard a lot of stories about whole families that would be sick at the same time and with multiple family members in the hospital. They told me a story about a grandmother, a mother, and a son who were all hospitalized at the same time. And not all of those people live. I mean, that is not an uncommon thing to have happen down there because this is a virus that spreads within households most effectively. And, you know, it's a lot of people who are all going to get sick at the same time. The patients that they have seen most recently in this wave, earlier on a year ago, they were old and frail people. Now they are younger and relatively healthy people. You know, everyone said these are the folks you're going to see walking around the Walmart or in the Kroger or something like that. They are not sick you know old people who were vulnerable to any kind of illness that would strike
0: them in your time they're uh, observing these hospitals as well tell me about the human element because this is an important part doctors and nurses are burnt out experiencing burnout and and one of the interesting things one of the physicians you spoke to said that that she feels like a failure sometimes because they think vaccines are the answers, but people don't want to listen to them. And there was a recent Gallup survey that said, you know, people are losing trust in their doctors. Small percentage, but it, that that was the trend. And, uh, you know, here they are fighting every day. You know, it's tough to get those messages across. How do they feel about it all?
2: I think that burnout doesn't even get close to describing it. I met with people at a hospital called St. Clair Regional Medical Center. They were in a truly horrific situation. And almost everybody I talked to seems to have some level of significant PTSD. I had conversations with people who said that they put somebody in a body bag every single day for two months that they worked. People who would come home from work and working a nursing shift in the hospital and be unable to hug their daughter because they felt so emotionally disconnected from the world. A lot of people... Cried to me when we had this conversation, these conversations. I cried, which is not something I do. I've seen a lot as a reporter, and they have been through things and seen an amount of death that I think is going to be profoundly important for whether or not these people stay in the healthcare workforce in the coming years. They are traumatized and frustrated. And they have poured their hearts and their bodies into trying to save these people. And they have just watched too many of them die. And they also feel like nobody outside the hospital walls has a good sense of what has been happening inside the hospital.
0: Drew Armstrong, Senior Editor for Healthcare at Bloomberg News. Thank you very much for joining us. Thank you.